Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 70. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas, and today I'll be taking a look at two films. The first in the 1987 crime drama called Street Smart. The story of a journalist who goes down a dark and murky, unethical path and locking horns with a street pimp who uh, smartens up this journalist to the ways of the street. Also, I'll be taking a look at In the Soup, a 1992 film starring Steve Buscemi. It's got comedy. It's got a love story. It's got bits and pieces of criminal behavior. It's very fun. But first, I am not too stoked about delivering this next piece of information. But those of you who have listened to the show for any extended period of time, you'll know that I have a little dog uh, named Ellie. I've often referred to her as Ellie, the skeleton factory dog. And, um, Ellie, I've, I've had since she was a month old, since she was a little tiny baby and, uh, just recently, uh, Ellie passed away. She was 13 years old and the last year of her life was kind of difficult her health declined significantly, and there was only so much that myself and my wife could do. So we had to make the tough decision to put Ellie down. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't easy. It was pretty rough. It's pretty rough there for uh, a while, actually. It's still kind of rough now just talking about it. But Ellie was a lovely pug, had so much personality. She was overly friendly. (laughs) When Ellie was younger, and we would take Ellie to dog parks and places like that, she had no fear of bigger, scarier dogs or at all. She would just walk right up to him and would just want to play and you know, she was she was full of energy in her youth and she was a real sweetheart so i i mean i'm really i'm really my wife and i are really glad that ellie was able to make it to our wedding last year we the, her health just kind of started to show some signs of decline and uh, our wedding was last year in October. And Ellie started to develop a limp. Could still walk, but it was developing a little bit of a limp, which, you know, we were concerned with, but we just figured it was something that came with age. She also developed a, a horrible cough. A horrible cough. It wasn't constant, but it was... 
Yeah, a couple times a day, she had to go into a coughing fit. She had a collapsed trachea, uh, which which kind of sounds worse than it, than it was. It's kind of like saying congenital heart failure. <laughs> like people are walking around with congenital heart failure, eating McDonald's all the time. You know what I mean? It's it's sort of a, a sort of a kind of a, <laughs> it's sort of a thing you just kind of live with. It's not like a sudden horrible thing, but. Ellie was still able to make it to the wedding, and we got tons of wonderful pictures with her, and everyone everyone loves her, Every, you know? So we're glad she made it to the wedding, because my wife and I, I mean, we were together, not were we already, <laughs> but at that point, we were together, ooh, I should just know this off the top of my head. We were together 11 years before we got married. And Ellie was there. I guess we don't know. I guess it was almost 12 years. But Ellie was there the whole time. I had Ellie for a year before I met my wife. So, you know, it was, you know, and knowing that her health was in decline, we were very stoked to <laughs> actually that Ellie made it to the wedding. And so that was, that was important to us. The, uh, but yes, Ellie's, uh, and I mean, that was less than a year. It was less than a year ago. Because it's right now, it's September of 2023. So Ellie, uh, Ellie lost her ability to walk. She lost her ability to, um, I mean, we think she was starting to lose, she, she started to lose vision in one of her eyes and her hearing wasn't great. So it was. It's been a rough year for Ellie. So we had to make the tough decision. So, in case anybody asks, what happened to Ellie? Ellie is now. Uh, she is. She was put down here at the house, and that was a very rough day. But the company. How about I plug the company that put down my dog? <laughs> But uh, it's this company called Fond Memories in Austin. The the owner came to the house, the the doctor, the veterinarian, and she was fantastic. She was incredibly compassionate and sweet, and was a pro about everything. Because we were a mess, you know. So it was really good to have somebody there who's, you know, <laughs> who had that good bedside manner. So, and then now, uh, a few days later, Ellie is returned to us in the form of ashes as we had her cremated. And now, in my hand, I am holding a beautiful wood box, a beautiful handmade wooden box with some very nice carvings of flowers on top uh, that Ellie's ashes are now sitting in, so... Ellie is in the studio with me, with us, for uh, for the foreseeable future. So, so yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you all that. That it. I wanted to start the show on a down note. So now it's all, you know. It's all, it's all, it's all smiles and sunshine and rainbows from this point on. 
So, um, you know what? Let's compound my misery. Um, I actually wanted to have a moment of silence for <laughs> for Ellie, my dog Ellie, whose full name was Ellie Danger Hester. So I'm going to have a brief moment of silence for Ellie now. Okay, let's get into the show, shall we? Well, uh, the the amount of movies that are coming down the pipe is going to be very exciting. 2024 is going to be a very interesting year. And a couple of movies I want to point out. Um, <laughs> because at this point, well, at least one of them, who knows if it's actually going to get made. But the first movie I want to talk about is Thanksgiving, the movie Thanksgiving. Now, if you remember the Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Grindhouse films, there was a little chunk in the middle of trailers for fake movies. And one of them was Machete, which actually got turned into a movie. There was one for Hobo with a Shotgun, which actually became a movie. And there was one for a movie called Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, you'll be coming home for the holidays in a body bag. <laughs> Which I really liked that fake trailer. You know, I I mean, I'm probably a little more partial to uh, Rob Zombie's Werewolf Women of the SS, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Maybe that'll get made into a movie someday. Who knows? I'm sure it's been brought to Rob Zombie's attention now that Eli Roth's Thanksgiving is going is going to be in theaters. It's going to be in theaters in November, as a matter of fact. Okay, so it's coming out very soon, and I'm very stoked about it. I saw the trailer. I thought the trailer looked pretty decent. I know that Eli Roth definitely has the chops for horror. And it looks like it's going to be a straight-ahead slasher film. You know, and it looks like the the killer is going to be like a pilgrim. (laughs) You know, like Plymouth Rock, you know, like like a traditional pilgrim with the hat and the whole thing. And it's, and the killer's wearing a mask. And I mean, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, it's coming out in November, obviously, for Thanksgiving. So if, if you go to thanksgiving.movie, it's um, it's connected to the Sony Pictures website. You can see the trailer there. It's also on YouTube. But I am, I have high hopes for Thanksgiving. So keep an eye out for that. Mark your calendars. I don't even think there's a release date. I don't don't know, Sony website at least. Oh, well. So the trailer for a film called Dream Scenario just dropped yesterday, as a matter of fact. Directed and written by Christopher Borgley, who is 
his films have been featured on Skeleton Factory. Most recently, the film Drib, and before that, a film called Sick of Myself, which I very much recommend, especially for the October Halloween spooky season. If you want a, a movie to sit around and watch with your friends and family, you know, something that's horrific, but it has a sense of humor to it, and something that's very well made and sick of myself, directed by Christopher Borgley. It looks wonderful. But Dream Scenario seems like, it's like, oh my goodness, Christopher Borgley has hit the big time. It is a film starring Nicolas Cage. The trailer looks fantastic. Let's see. Let me read the IMDb storyline for you. Dream scenario. Okay, Nicholas Cage stars as Paul Matthews, a listless family man and tenured professor with an affinity for evolutionary biology and anxiety regarding his own anonymity. One day he discovers he has begun to appear in other people's dreams at an exponential rate. As in life, his presence in these dreams is banal and non-intrusive. He's simply there, staring indifferently at the fantasies and nightmares of strangers. Nonetheless, he becomes an overnight celebrity and is soon showered with the attention he has long been denied. But when Paul encounters a dreamer whose visions of him differ substantially from the norm, he finds himself grappling with the Faustian bargain of fame as his dream selves start inexplicably becoming violent within their respective subconsciousnesses. That is from the Dream Scenario IMDb page. Hollywood Reporter says it's pure comedy gold. Nicolas Cage has never been funnier. I don't know about that. We'll see about that. But yes, it looks like it's a good star. Lily Bird and Julianne Nicholson. And of course, Nicolas Cage. Check out the trailer. It looks great. And check out some of Christopher Borgley's prior works. He's got a very fresh, interesting take on filmmaking that I think is there's a I think there's a, a need for it I think there's a there's a <laughs> uh, I, I think he's kind of like the perfect next up and coming guy so yeah dream scenario check it out as of right now there is no announced release date and last but not least I want to point out that there's going to be a remake of The Highlander. Now, I'm a big fan of The Highlander. I grew up watching the movies. I grew up watching the television show. <laughs> and a, not a lot is known at the moment about the Highlander reboot. But what is known is that Henry Cavill is set to play the character of the Highlander, Connor McLeod. And I believe 
you know, this is I'm not sure how true this is, but it seem it sounds true according to the internet. And why would the internet lie to me? That the character of the Kurgan, which is the bad guy in the Highlander, at least the Highlander Part One, uh, is going to be played by Dave Batista. So, sure, I can go along with that. So uh, the so we have Henry Cavill, we got Dave Batista, and the movie is going to be directed by John Wick director Chad Stileski. That's pretty exciting. And Chad Stileski has a huge uh, stuntman background. So you incorporate uh, sort of the stunts of John Wick movies, <laughs> but add some swords. And I think it's this has the potential of being a really great franchise. So we'll see. We'll see. As of right now, there is no, you know, release date. There's no trailers. There's no teasers yet. So let's hope that this movie actually goes through. Because I got all hyped up some time back about a, um, a biopic about Hulk Hogan that was going to star a uh, much chemically enhanced Chris Hemsworth and it was going to be directed by Todd Phillips but something happened Todd Phillips directed Joker and Joker was supposed to be a one and done project for him but then I'm sure somebody told him hey Todd you're the you're the sequel guy you're the hangover guy and here's a whole bunch of money do you think you want to reconsider directing a Joker sequel? And he said, sure, I'll do a Joker sequel. Completely abandoning the Hulk Hogan movie. So, I mean, maybe he'll revisit it. But as of now, the Hulk Hogan movie has been completely put on hold. So... But pro wrestling is coming back into the ether. There's some television show that I'm forgetting the name of right now that I probably won't watch, but it's about pro wrestlers. The Iron Claw, the movie about the wrestling family, the Von Erichs, the Von Erichs family. That's going to be coming out really soon. And Jeremy Allen White and Zach Efron is going to be in that film. I don't know who else at this point. I don't know if there's a release date for that. There's definitely not a trailer yet, but I think there's I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of material to make more kind of pro wrestling movies, especially back in the day. Because back in the day was chaos. It was pure madness. Everyone was on steroids, everyone was dying of drug overdoses, people were pulling guns on each other. It was a good time. <laughs> So we will see. We will see. Well, I'll be keeping my ear to the ground with this new Highlander movie news. So now, finally, let's get into the movies. From the fine people at Canon Films, we have Street Smart from 1987. 
directed by Jerry Schatzberg and starring Christopher Reeve and Morgan Freeman. And I have a VHS copy of Street Smart, and I'm going to read the back of the box. It's a great-looking box, too. Fantastic. It's got the Canon Film logo there. It's got Christopher Reeve and Morgan Freeman and... It's got a little pull quote from the Los Angeles Times. Loaded with surprises, powerfully unsettling, an electric mixture headed straight for overload. Marvelous actors in big roles and small. Okay, Street Smart, starring Christopher Reeve. Superstar Christopher Reeve, Superman 1 through 4, and Death Trap is a hotshot reporter who writes himself into a deadly corner in this electrifying urban thriller. From the director of Scarecrow and Panic in Needle Park, with his career floundering magazine writer Jonathan Fisher. I thought he was a hotshot reporter. Now he's floundering? Hmm. That was quick. With his career floundering magazine writer Jonathan Fisher, Christopher Reeve, concocts a fictitious story of a high-living Times Square pimp. His bogus article succeeds, but his make-believe criminal bears an uncanny resemblance to the real-life pimp known as Fast Black, who's wanted by the DA for a vicious murder. Soon, Jonathan and his newfound ally, a savvy, seasoned hooker named Punchy, played by Kathy Baker, finds themselves being Badgered by the DA for Jonathan's non-existent notes and brutally threatened by Fast Black, who desperately needs the reporter to give him an airtight alibi. It's a biting, critically acclaimed foray into dangerous ambition and a gut-wrenching inner-city violence. 97 minutes. Rated R. Okie dokie. Street smart. So like I said, Christopher Reeve is the character of Jonathan Fisher, a lackluster magazine reporter for the New York Journal. Jonathan has to complete a 2,000-word article about the 24 hours in the life of a Times Square pimp. That's how he pitched it to his, to his boss. Well, unable to meet the deadline, Jonathan ends up fabricating a story about the exploits of a made-up pimp named Tyrone. Jonathan lies in his article and is heralded as an ear-to-the-ground genius journalist. So, which is a bit of a problem, right? You fabricate an article about a, a supposed real person and everyone thinks you're absolutely amazing. It's rather dishonest, you know. This article brings him a new surge of popularity and in the good graces of his editor, even getting Jonathan a TV news job with his own segment called Street Smart. And in Street Smart, it's a news segment where he catches crooks on hidden cameras doing crimes and he interviews criminals and vandals including a graffiti artist, which is interesting. Uh, 
it's not often that you see the news talking to graffiti artists. But it's that little scene where he's talking to the graffiti artist guy reminded me of a documentary called Piece by Piece. It's a documentary about graffiti culture in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it came out several years ago. It came out quite a quite a while ago at this point. But it's it's interesting because there's different crews of graffiti artists and they would uh that was like the only time I've ever seen like <laughs> graffiti artists on camera talking. Because obviously you don't want to show your face. That's probably a bad idea. Especially, you know, you don't want your enemies to see your face. You definitely don't want the cops to see your face. But yeah, yeah if, you, if you're kind of a documentary loving person, check out Piece by Piece. It's interesting. Even if you're not into graffiti. I'm not into graffiti. I think graffiti is vandalism. <laughs> I think some of it looks really cool. But most of it is garbage. Graffiti is like any other kind of art, in my opinion. It's like music. Most music is terrible. But here and there, you you do hear something that's rather amazing. So, meanwhile, while Jonathan's going through this, you know, new surge of popularity, an actual Times Square pimp named Fast Black, played by Morgan Freeman, accidentally kills a John who's beating up one of his hoes. Okay? So, one of his... One of his ladies of the night. One of his what they call, what they call sex workers nowadays. Sex workers. Sounds like she works in a factory, factory that makes sex. I don't know. I've always felt weird about the term sex workers. It sounds like plumber or something. Anyways, <laughs> one of Fast Black's uh, uh, sex workers is in this little scummy hotel room, and uh, he. He's down the hall and he hears horrible screaming. He comes in and the John is beating up his, his, his prostitute, his sex worker. And he ends up jumping on the guy, beating him up. And then the guy ends up having a heart attack and dies. So Fast Black sort of involuntarily murders this guy. Okay. So we jump forward and Fast Black gets caught and he has to go to trial for the murder of the John and his lawyer who's kind of a scumbag obviously because he's defending the bad guy in the movie (laughs) his lawyer wants to subpoena Jonathan Fisher's notes okay because there's the even even fast blacks lawyer read Jonathan's article and is like Hey, Fast Black, this guy in the article, this is you. And Fast Black, Morgan Morgan Freeman, he's he's like, that's not me. That dude in that article is not me. And his lawyer's like, dude, that it sounds exactly like you. And Morgan Freeman's like, look, dude, that ain't me. So quit saying it's me. But that article got the idea in Fast Black's lawyer's head that, hey, this this journalist. He may be exploiting your story. We can say that, you know, we can say that this guy is writing about you and we can, uh, for no other reason, 
I mean, it does seem kind of absurd when you go back and really scrutinize the film, but he basically wants to introduce this, like, Jonathan's notes about this quote-unquote Tyrone character in the article. For no other, he wants to introduce these notes into the court of law for no other reason than to sow confusion and doubt in the jury's minds. Okay, because he feels if like, okay, we we sow doubt, we sow confusion in the minds of the jury. Okay, and that's going to be your way out of getting a murder conviction. But the thing is, there are, there are no notes to subpoena. Right, because Jonathan made up the story. He made up Tyrone. There is no Times Square pimp. <laughs> it's all it all came from Jonathan's head. So now Jonathan is massively compromised. His legitimacy as a journalist is brought into question. And as the story moves forward, Jonathan digs himself even deeper into a hole. He's just digging a hole, digging himself deeper. He ends up being fell, found held in contempt of court after refusing to produce his notes at the order of a judge, which is a sticky situation to be in. He's not going to admit to a judge, oh, this article is fake, but I'm going around telling people it's real. But at the same time, he can't tell... All he can really tell the judge is, I can't produce the notes. That just pisses off the judge. The judge is like, you have the notes, and you better fucking bring them to me, or you're going to be in big trouble, mister. <laughs> that's not exactly what, how, what the judge said, but that's basically what the judge meant. And Jonathan also gets compromised in a way where, uh, and he ends up having unprotected vaginal intercourse with Fast Black's top earner, the character of Punchy, played by Kathy Baker. Uh, you'll know Kathy Baker as the horny neighbor, uh, the character of Joyce Monroe from Edward Scissorhands. She's that very sultry, red-headed neighbor lady who wants to get her a piece of some Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, it's her. She's the character of Punchy. Punchy is an abused prostitute that ends up a murder victim of Fast Black. Okay, she ends up kind of playing both sides of the fence here. She ends up trying to help Jonathan, but at the same time, you know, she belongs to the streets, as they say. <laughs> and she belongs to Fast Black, and Fast Black is not going to have dissension in his ranks, after all. So Fast Black ends up murdering Punchy because why Why have a witness? Why have someone who can possibly snitch on you? Why have someone who's compromised, hanging out with this uh, journalist who can bring down your whole world so he gets rid of her rather quickly? Jonathan's girlfriend, Allison, the character of Allison, finds out all of this is going on. Well, John, well, she knew that Jonathan's article was fake and she was a little, mm, you know, she was kind of, she was kind of with it. You know, she thought, well, this, this doesn't seem ethical. But then once 
Jonathan's getting offered TV show deals and 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 fame and fortune, then she just kind of rolled with it, right? So she's not innocent either, which I like about this movie. No one's really innocent. Everyone is kind of scummy. Everyone's sort of compromised. You know, there's no clear good guy, bad guy. I love that. So Allison finds out, oh, you've been sleeping with this prostitute punchy behind my back. You've been, you know, dealing with this horrible pimp guy, fast black. You're going to be held. You're, you're held in contempt of court. You're going to go to jail. I can't be involved with you, with you anymore. You're a nightmare. I can't trust you. So she leaves, which is a good idea. <laughs> That's a smart idea on Allison's part. And, but, but that doesn't save her. She ends up getting hospitalized after getting stabbed by Fast Black's right-hand guy. His, his, his sort of, his lackey, the character Reggie. So even when she tries to get out, they're like, you don't get to get out. You know, we need to, we need to be able to get to Jonathan. And the way you get to people is by harming those close to him. So she was innocent, but they wanted to send a message to Jonathan. And the way she gets stabbed is very disturbing. Like she's, it's like broad daylight. She's at some market. It's like out front of this market, like looking at flowers. There's people on the sidewalk everywhere. And Reggie just casually walks by her and just sticks her once in the stomach and walks away. And it happens so quickly that she doesn't even realize she's been stabbed at first. She's like, oh my God, I think that guy just punched me in the side of my stomach. And then she looks and she's like, oh no, I actually have a hole punched into the side of my abdomen and I'm bleeding. That's very scary. But Jonathan ends up becoming fed up and uses his street smarts, if you will, to frame Reggie. He utilizes his hidden camera techniques to film a situation where Jonathan has one of his, uh, well, it's one of Fast Black's hooker women, sex workers, has one of them take some cash to Reggie and hand it to him. Now, the footage of this, this exchange makes it look like Reggie is skimming money from Fast Black by taking money from his girls because the money that they earn is supposed to go to Fast Black, right? Because he's the pimp. Reggie's just the, just, he's just the lackey, okay? So now Jonathan's, Jonathan lures Reggie over to his news van that's parked down the street and he shows Reggie the footage. Okay, and then he tells him he's going to go show this footage to Fast Black. Okay, and the film thoroughly establishes that the dastardly Fast Black will maim or kill anyone in his organization that goes against him. But he never finds out about the video. 
Okay, it was just a tactic to scare Reggie because Reggie's dangerous. So he gets ready. He tells Reggie, like, look, I'm going to show this to Fast Black and he's going to kill you if he knows that you're taking his money from his girls. So you better get the fuck out of town, which is smart because Reggie's the muscle. Reggie's the guy who will go out and stab people for you, for instance. But, you know, that's what Reggie thinks. But Jonathan never shows the footage to Fast Black. So Reggie goes into hiding, avoiding his boss, Fast Black, like the plague. A black plague, if you will. And Fast Black eventually runs into Reggie on the street. Now, from the perspective of Fast Black, he's like, dude, my my right-hand guy, Reggie, he's like, hasn't been coming around. I don't know where he is. I can't get a hold of him. That's weird. You know, he has no idea of what's going on. He's just like, Reggie's supposed to drive me around, pick up my laundry, you know, kill people if I ask him to. Don't know where he is. So eventually he runs into Reggie and is confused when Reggie, as soon as he sees him, he runs away from him in fear. He's like, what the fuck? So he like chases down Reggie and Reggie accidentally trips and falls, twisting his ankle. And when Flashback catches up to him, he's like, dude, what the hell are you running from me? What, what, what are you running from? Reggie, in a panic, pulls a small, small gun from his ankle holster, which was established earlier in the film, which I appreciate. Pulls a small gun from his ankle holster and very suddenly shoots Fast Black in the chest. It's very unexpected. It's very shocking. And the movie, from this point on, sort of rushes to the end. Fast Black is dead. Okay? So, Fast Black is dead. And the movie rushes to the end. We jump to Reggie under arrest, limping away in handcuffs. So, what do we have now? Jonathan... I guess no one's really going to, I mean, who's going to hire him? He's, <laughs> I mean, he's not exactly the most ethical reporter in the world. Fast Black is dead. And Reggie is going to prison probably for a long time. So really, Jonathan gets to kind of get away with, you know, Kind of, he, he's, it seems that he just kind of got away with it, and everything is gonna be, uh, everything's gonna be all right, even though everything is not all right. His his lady left him; she ended up getting stabbed. He's probably still gonna go to jail, <laughs> and he's probably never gonna get hired as a reporter again. But but no no bother, okay? Because the camera pans. Okay, you see Reggie getting taken away by the police. That whole little part of the street is now a crime area. Fast Black is dead. He's getting hauled away. And the camera pans to Jonathan, microphone in hand, reporting in front of a camera on the death of Fast Black. Okay? And, I mean, that's... That's street justice, I guess. They should just they should have called the movie Street Justice. Because it's not like... It's not like 
the system didn't work for anybody in this scenario. Not even, not even Jonathan, really. And that was Street Smart. <laughs> and I like Street Smart. I like it a lot. I think in the um, in the the history of canon films, you know, it's one of those movies I really enjoyed. That really felt like a movie, you know, a re- something with drama and good actors and an interesting story. And you know, it shows New York City in the '80s, which is always fun to look at. But yeah, I mean, just I mean, just I mean, look at this cast. You have Christopher Reeve, you have Kathy Baker, Mimi Rogers, Andre Gregory. He played uh, Jonathan's boss, Morgan Freeman. This was kind of like the breakout role for Morgan Freeman, really. This is the movie that kind of got him and got the attention of people, got the attention of Hollywood, and after that, the rest is history. Morgan Freeman became a gigantic star. But I recommend Street Smart. I like it very, very much. It's not the best uh, pimp on a rampage movie. That honor goes to the film Vice Squad, which I have reviewed, which I recommend. Go watch Vice Squad. It's, It's a lot sleazier than Street Smart. And it's much more violent. I enjoy that very much. Especially if you're a fan of Wings Hauser, if you want to see Wing Wings Hauser as a white cowboy pimp hunting down a prostitute in Los Angeles, that's probably how they sold the movie. Just that, just that description alone sounds completely worthwhile. That's another movie, a movie that's not a horror movie. But I think for the month of October, if you want to kind of mix it up a little bit, like watch Ice Squad. That's going be a great movie to watch during the month of October. So Street Smart is a cautionary tale. Of It's really a cautionary tale to journalists, really. And the point is to, uh, hey, journalists, be honest. Do your job, be impartial, tell the truth. Otherwise, you'll go the way of Christopher Reeve's character, Jonathan Fisher. Disgraced, both professionally and personally. And you'll you'll end up going the way of real-life so-called journalists. You know their names. You know, but, but that was then. This is the mid-'80s. That was then. Now, any dickhead off the street can be a journalist. It's almost a meaningless distinction nowadays. Nowadays, you rather tell the truth or you don't. And unfortunately, I... I, That's how I recommend to people to consume... um, Uh, the the news, quote unquote, the news. Okay, are the people reporting on whatever, whether if it's on television or in print, are they telling the truth? And if they're not, shouldn't those people be held accountable for not telling the truth? Mm. 
those are the thoughts that come up in my mind when I think about Street Smart. So go check out Street Smart's lovely film. And the final film on this episode is going to be the 1992 independent feature film In the Soup, directed by Alexander Rockwell, starring Steve Buscemi, the great Seymour Castle, and Jennifer Beals. And I have a DVD of In the Soup. Who put this out? Hmm. Phantoma.com. Hmm. That's a mark of quality. Phantoma.com. So I'm going to read the back of this DVD box to you right now. Fade in a rundown New York apartment. We find Adolfo Rolo, Steve Buscemi from Ghost World and Reservoir Dogs. And his 500-page script, tortured by self-doubt, financial ruin, and unrequented passion for his next-door neighbor, Jennifer Beals, Flashdance, the L word, Adolfo places an ad offering his mammoth screenplay to the highest bidder. Enter Joe, Seymour Castle, Rushmore, Faces, a fast-talking shyster who promises to produce the film, but has his own unique ideas regarding film financing. The winner of the Grand Jury Prize at the 1992 Sundance Film Festival, director Alexander Rockwell's absurd and wonderful comedy features a once-in-a-lifetime performance by Castle and hilarious support from an amazing cast including Sam Rockwell, Stanley Tucci, Will Patton, Debbie Mazar, Jim Jarmusch, and Carol Kane. And this DVD has lots of special features as well. This is a 2004 release. Okay, let's get into In the Soup. Are you ready for some comedy that's also a love story? Well, are you? Okay, good. We're introduced to Adolfo Rolo, played by Steve Buscemi, who is a down-on-his-luck yet aspiring filmmaker. He lives in the typical roach-infested, shitty New York apartment. He's got two ball-busting landlords chasing him down for the rent and a lovely next-door neighbor that he has the hots for but she's repulsed by his very existence. Adolfo is a dreamer and a bit of a slacker. He takes odd jobs to make ends meet. In an early scene, he takes a gig at a local TV show called The Naked Truth, a show ran by a married couple played by Carol Kane and Jim Jarmusch. The Naked Truth is a show where real people are interviewed on camera totally naked, Adolfo does the show, and he's promised $100 to do it. Adolfo's really hard up for money, so of course he does it. Afterwards, we see him plop down on his dumpster-worthy couch in his apartment with the narration that uh, he, they gave him 40 bucks and not 100 
So we ended up three eating three pizzas and then vomiting. So desperate for rent money, Adolfo has nothing left to sell in his apartment except one thing. The one thing that he covets. His script. His 500-page script to the movie he's been toiling over his whole life, really. The movie's titled Unconditional Surrender, <laughs> which is a pretty... Pretty bad movie title. <laughs> so he takes out a takes out an ad in the paper, and after a week, one person replied. A man simply named Joe. Now we let's enter Joe, played by Seymour Castle. Seymour uh, Castle came up in my. Last episode, actually, for uh, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, the John Cassavetes film. Seymour Castle had a role in that, and he's great in that. He's kind of great in everything. But this movie, he really gets to shine in a comedic capacity. So Joe is very charming, he's very likable, and is clearly connected to some kind of form of organized crime. <laughs> but Joe likes Adolfo. Joe is probably old enough to be Adolfo's father and throughout the movie kind of serves as a father figure to him. Adolfo goes out to meet Joe at a hotel room to, you know, do the exchange money for his script, right? So Adolfo goes to Joe's hotel room. Joe sat on a couch in a in his boxers talking to his bookie on the phone with his much younger topless Asian girlfriend named Dang kind of floating around the room. She's a flirtatious girl who likes cocaine and is very flirty. Joe wants to go into business with Adolfo and make his script into a real movie. He doesn't just want to buy the script. He wants to work with Adolfo to turn this script into a film. He gives Adolfo, Adolfo twice the amount of money that he asked for. He wanted $500. Joe gave him 1000 Joe gives him 1000 in cash, sends Adolfo on his way. So Joe quickly becomes Adolfo's best friend, even getting Adolfo's thug landlords off his back. But one day, Joe picks up Adolfo and they go for a drive. Joe is dressed like Santa Claus for some reason. And they're rolling into this suburban neighborhood where Joe points out a house with a Porsche parked in the driveway. Uh, explaining to Adolfo that a vehicle that expensive would be impossible on a cop's salary. So he's suggesting that the cop who lives in that house is a dirty cop and he bought his Porsche with dirty cop money. So Joe ends up stealing the cop's Porsche and despite Adolfo's uh, protests, you know, Joe has to explain that they need to steal and sell this car on the black market and the money, the proceeds from that sale will help pay to produce the film. 
So Joe is definitely a criminal. And but he wants to make Adolfo's movie a reality. But this is he just he explains this. He says, this is this is the way we got to do it. You want money for film, you want movie money for cameras and a crew and all that. Pay your actors. This is how we got to do it, okay? And as time moves forward, Joe and Adolfo raise a ton of money, basically selling stolen merchandise. But remember, this is a comedy and a love story. So one night, there's loud noises and screaming coming from next door. Adolfo's neighbors, you know, next door, where Angelica, Jennifer Beals, the lady's got the hots for. Scary noises coming from her apartment. So Adolfo wakes up and rushes next door, walks into the apartment to find two screaming children and a mentally handicapped Sam Rockwell in a plastic football helmet having a pillow fight. And their screams were actually screams of laughter. And they were having a good old time. And there's down feathers from the pillows just swirling in the air and falling like snow. Everyone stops. Sam Rockwell gives Steve Buscemi a big hug, <laughs> which is kind of awkward. Adolfo doesn't know this guy. And Angelica walks in the door. There's feathers in the air, kids jumping on the bed, screaming, drawing on the walls. Her neighbor is standing in her kid's room. And her brother, Sam Rockwell, is crawling all over him. So after after yelling at the kids, she pulls the... Um, mentally retarded Sam Rockwell off of Adolfo. She's like, what are you doing here, Steve Buscemi? What are you doing in my house? And Adolfo explains that he heard loud, distressful screaming coming through their thin, crumbling walls in the dead of the night. And he came to investigate, see if he can help. Which Angelica thought, hey, what a guy, what a brave and neighborly thing to do. Maybe this next door neighbor guy isn't so bad. And Adolfo explains her like, hey, you know, you should be in my movie. It's like he wrote a part just for her after all. He explains to her, I wrote a part just for you. You play an angel. Because when I see you, I see an angel. And you you have to be in my movie. And Angelica's not an actress, okay? She works at a cafe. But he wants her to be in his movie. Playing an angel. And her name's Angelica. Get it? Angel? Angelica? So after this, in one of my favorite moments in the whole movie, Adolfo, Angelica, and Sam Rockwell are on the rooftop of their building. So we have this sort of New York in the background. Snow blowing all around them. It's like a snow globe. This beautiful, gentle snow swirling around them. Adolfo is filming Angelica dancing in circles. And she's smiling. She's laughing. She's spinning in circles in slow motion. And it's really beautiful. 
And I know that this scene was actually improvised. It was shot after production already wrapped, and it started snowing one day, and the director, Alexander Rockwell, called everyone over to shoot this specific scene. Because it's like, oh, my God, we have snow. We have real snow. Okay, everyone get down here now. We need to shoot this right now. <laughs> and I and they had limited, they kind of, the scene is very short, so I can see why he, like, made it in slow motion so he can really stretch out the actual scene and add some very kind of dreamy music to it. And it's and the scene is very dreamlike. It mirrors the feathers in the air in the bedroom scene prior. And I think it really ties the movie together. It kind of cements sort of Sibashemi's attraction is sort of infatuation with Angelica and it, you kind of get a sense of what Adolfo's movie can look like and what it would be about. And it finally connects the two of them because really Angelica was very dismissive of Adolfo, didn't want to have anything to do with him, and now she kind of warmed up to him. So now they're finally, you know, the the, the kindling, the, the spark of a relationship is is just kind of starting. So that's that's always nice. Now, it took me actually a couple watches to even think about this, but I wonder, is that scene real? Or is it in a daydream that Adolfo is having? I don't know. Because he does have daydreams a couple times during the film where they're sort of, you know, you go inside of his head a little bit. And this particular one, it's so dreamlike. I wonder if this is a daydream or if this is actually something that in the movie, these characters went and did with each other, but it actually does. You know what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. But I'm. I wonder. So one day, Joe's at Adolfo's, and Adolfo's sort of throwing a throwing a tissy about the two of them having stacked so much money. They've been spending a lot of money. And Adolfo's starting to get the feeling that Joe doesn't... He doesn't seem serious about making a motion picture with him. And Joe assures him, like, dude, we're going to make the movie, but we have to we have to create a bond between us. We have to, you know, we, we have to have a trust. You know, the movie's... The, the, the money for the movie is not just going to drop in our lap. You know, we have to... We have to earn it. We have to stack it up. You got to spend money to make money. Okay. So Joe, here's Angelica coming home, coming up the stairs, coming through the hallway. And he takes a look through the peephole. And it's like, wow, is, is that that Angelica girl you've been talking to? I can see why you're into her. He knows Adolfo has a crush on her. And being the charming wingman that Joe is, he goes over to Angelica's and invites her out to dinner and dancing with him, Adolfo and Joe's girlfriend, Dang, for New Year's Eve. So we jump to a nice hotel room where 
our double date party is getting started. There's champagne, there's dancing, there's good tidings. But Joe gets a little too friendly with Angelica at one point. Okay, so while innocently dancing, Joe tries to plant a kiss on Angelica. And she pushes him off. He gets a little aggressive about it. And she grabs her stuff and storms off. She leaves. And Adolfo tries to stop her, but she ain't having it. Adolfo leaves as well, but not long after, Joe tracks him down at his apartment with two hooker friends to brighten up Adolfo's night. I can kind of see where Joe's thinking was. He's like, hey, you know, you you know, our whole double date got kind of ruined. Angelica stormed uh, off in a huff. She went home. Adolfo has to go home alone on New Year's Eve. So I'm going to pick up some hookers and go to his house and try to ring in the new year with Adolfo and try to cheer him up. One of the hookers, the character of Jackie, is played by Elizabeth Bracco, who also appeared in the film Mystery Train, along with Steve Buscemi, and directed by Jim Jarmusch, who has a small part in this movie. And I cover Mystery Train in great detail on episode 61 of Skeleton Factory. That was back when I was still... I would just have, like, titles for naming the episodes. Now I'm just like numbering all of the episodes with the name of the movie next to it. Is that a good idea? I don't know. People seem to like it. But I cover Mystery Train on episode 61, and the show is titled Feel Good Movies Part 2. And on that episode, I talk about Mystery Train, and I also talk about... Uh, the David Byrne film, True Stories. A lovely episode. Lovely films. So, Elizabeth Bracco, uh, you'll also know as uh, Vito's wife from The Sopranos, if you're into The Sopranos at all. So, the next morning, Joe gets a call. And this call is good news. Him and Adolfo have got one last crime to do and then boom they got all the money they need for the movie the long road of crime looks like it's actually going to pay off so Joe tells Adolfo that he's standing in on an exchange of drugs so basically he's he needs Adolfo to pose as a guy who's supposed to be receiving some drugs from these drug dealer guys. Who's actually supposed to be picking up the drugs? I don't know. But Joe tells Adolfo that he's standing in on an exchange of drugs with a guy in a gorilla suit with a midget. Again, this is a comedy. So once they get the drugs, Joe can sell them off and then boom, they got their the rest of the money they need to finance Adolfo's film. But unfortunately, once the whole drug exchange happens, there's 
basically instant retaliation. The midget that I mentioned earlier ends up killing Joe's brother, the character of Skippy. And Skippy is in the film here and there. I just haven't brought him up. But he's he is a side character. But Joe and Skippy flew too cro- close to the sun. And Skippy ended up getting murdered. So Joe knows that he may be next. So I'm kind of jumping to the end now. So Joe and Adolfo and Angelica end up at a quiet beach and Joe is distraught about the death of Skippy. He sat at a picnic table loading a gun. It's like, does he want revenge? Or does he just want to take the money and run? Adolfo's convinced that no matter what Joe says, I mean, he feels that Joe has been using him the whole time. And never had any intention of making a movie. That's how Adolfo feels. But Joe is like, no, we're, we're going to make this movie. We're going to make this movie. I know things are bad now. Skippy got killed. But you know what we do have? We got this money. We have Angelica, our star. We can still make this movie. So they start to argue. And Angelica has heard enough. So she ends up grabbing Joe's gun and at gunpoint demands, give me the keys to the car. I don't want to be here. She's not part of the whole, the situation. And she wants out. She's like, I don't want to be around for this. I don't know what you guys are into or what. She's like, but give me the keys to the car. I'm getting the hell out of here. So Joe goes to give Angelica the keys. Like, okay, hey, relax. Here's the keys. Goes to hand it to her. And he kind of lunges at the gun. But the gun goes off. Now, we think for a moment that she shot Joe, but Joe's fine. She ends up taking the keys and leaves. You know, Adolfo tries to stop her, but Joe's like, he stops Adolfo. And he's like, nah, just let her go. Let her go. Let her cool off. She'll be back. Okay. So Joe and Adolfo take a stroll down the beach and they sit down and have a chat. Joe tells Adolfo, we, we got this money. Take the money. Take the money. Make your film. You know, but make it a love story. That was something that Joe kind of always pushed for the whole time. He's just like, your script is very long and convoluted and pretentious. <laughs> So like, why don't you do something simple like a love story? And Adolfo's like, I don't want to do that. Like, Everyone does that. There's thousands of movies like that. But Joe's like, yeah, but it's simple. People like simple. So Joe is like, take the money. Make your movie. Make it a love story. And Adolfo at that moment has an epiphany. He thinks instead of making the next Tarkovsky film, some artsy fartsy nonsense... How about I just ditch my overinflated script and make the story about them? Make a movie about their story. Okay, he's... Which is sort of... Is that meta? As the definition goes? 
that Steve Buscemi wants to make a movie about the movie that we just saw. Okay, that's like his revelation. That's sort of his his aha moment. And while he's kind of mulling this over out loud to Joe, he turns to Joe and Joe Joe's face is blank and he's slumped over. And Adolfo realizes that Joe is bleeding from his abdomen. Turns out Angelica did shoot him. And now Joe's dead to Adolfo's shock. The camera pans up and we see Angelica running up the beach towards them. And there's some sort of parting narration from Adolfo. He says he's going to make his movie. You know, he doesn't, he's not 100% sure if Joe ever really wanted to make the movie, but he's going to make the movie anyways. And this whole time, he still never knew Joe's last name. The movie ends, cut to credits, the end. And that was In the Soup. And I like In the Soup a lot. It's it's very much got this It's shot in black and white. Actually, it was shot on color, and then they had to uh, make it black and white. Because I know there's like color versions out there in the world. But the copy I have is in black and white, and I think I really enjoy it in black and white. But it's it's very much like a 90s indie film. You know, it's it's quirky and it's charming and director Alexander Rockwell uh, did go on to make the film Four Rooms with uh, which was co-directed with Allison Anders, Robert Rodriguez and uh, Quentin Tarantino. And it was a star studded cast. And you know who else was in it? Jennifer Beals was in it. And. One thing I thought was really interesting in the, because it's basically an anthology movie, you know, but it's about Tim Roth is a bellhop at a hotel on New Year's Eve. And it's a, it's about the f- interactions that he has with the people in four different rooms. One of them is a coven of witches. <laughs> One of them is this couple that is um, kind of going through this uh, hostage scenario kind of sexual drama thing. There's uh, Antonio Benders is this gangster dude and Tim Roth has to like watch the kids while they're, you know, his parents are away. And then there's a story where uh, Quentin Tarantino is like this famous director who is making a bet with a friend of his about, you know, and if, if Quentin Tarantino wins the bet, then he gets to chop off his friend's finger. And if he loses, he's got to give his, his car to you know, his friend and great movie. Check out four rooms. But one, one little thing that's interesting is there in one of Adolfo's sort of, uh, daydreams. There's a scene where, uh, Angelica is tied to a chair. She's wearing sort of a, I don't know what you would call it. Some type of like a nighty or some type of negligee, some type of, you know, silky, strappy kind of undergarment thing. She's strapped to a chair with a with a a rag tied around her mouth. And 
that's just in sort of a kind of a daydream that Adolfo briefly has. But in four rooms in the Alexander Rockwell portion of the film, Jennifer Beals is actually tied to a chair for a giant chunk of that part of the film wearing the same thing, gag in mouth, tied to it. It's, I don't know, I just thought that was really interesting. And and her character in Four Rooms, her name is Angela. Mm. It's almost like Alexander Rockwell has his own little mini world going on inside of his movies. I don't know how far that trend goes inside of his movies. It's kind of like Michael Haneke's films, right? Like every character is named George and Marie, like in every single movie. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that was in the soup. Check it out. It's a delightful little comedy. It's got a little bit of a love story in there. You know, it's got it's got sex and violence, and it's got a lovely cast, and I enjoyed it very much. Also, go check out. Street Smart. If you want to watch something a little grittier and grimier, I also recommend that. Well, I'm going to get out of here, guys. Thank you very much for listening. If you need to get a hold of me, please do so on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. I'm also on Twitter at SFPodcastATX. And I'm also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Skeleton Factory. There's a bunch of audio episodes there. There's some video content. And it's the best place that you can support the show. As currently, I don't have any sponsors. So your contributions help support the show. And it's very much appreciated. If you're already a patron, I thank you. So stay tuned. October is right around the corner. So I plan on doing some spooky October episodes. So I'm very stoked about that as I am a giant Halloween fan. Well, this is the Skeleton Factory podcast, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. I am Adam. I will check you all on the next one. Bye bye.